Welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jana Hill. And this week, I'm a big loser, so we have to read my least favorite Marvel comic of all time, Ultimatum. Excelsior. I hope no one listening actually read this along with us. If you do, Godspeed. It's nasty. I haven't, like, intentionally gone... I, I just, like, think it's a bad vibe to go into something, like, knowing and expecting and wanting to hate it. I, th- I think that you should, like, approach everything with an open heart. But mm-hmm. kind of felt good. Kind of felt good to just be mean to this comic, because it's bad. Yeah, it was... Oh, boy. To give my general thoughts before we get into it, before we do anything, I went into this knowing it was bad... I definitely had known a bunch, like some of the the moments in it. I never read it. I feel like I I watched someone review it like seven years ago. But I was reading the first issue, going, you know, this isn't as bad as I expected it to be. <laughs> uh-huh. And then the further in I got, the more I went, oh yeah, no, this is yeah. I sense it now. That's funny. I get it. I understand. It's funny you should say that because um, I, before I read it, I looked up some of the reviews that came out at the time to just, uh, I was like, everyone hated this, right? There wasn't like a, we didn't turn on this later or something. And Uh I noticed, I went on Comic Book Roundup, which uh, has issue by issue all of the number, the number scores of all the reviews of every comic site you can think of. Mm Mm-hmm. And I noticed issue number one was like a six out of ten. And then after that, it dropped off to like a one out of 10. And um, yeah. and I was like, really? Were we just like rose-colored glasses? We just didn't realize what we had here and then we soured on it? But no, issue one feels more like a something before it just turns into this like abattoir of nihilism. Yeah, it's not a good issue. There are many reasons for but this. But it and is again, we'll get into a it. comic book story in an issue, which is more than the next four issues yes. can say. Oh, yeah. It's uh. It's something. And it's I, something else. So I um, had two sets of notes, uh, the our shared notes and my personal notes. And I accidentally wrote um, just a – I was reading a review of Ultimatum, the whole thing. And at the end – at the end, the review opened up by saying um, the total body count was 34 heroes and villains dead. And I wrote that down just to be like, ah, I know this is mostly about killing off a lot of important characters. So maybe that number will be significant. And I accidentally uh-huh. wrote it in on our shared notes, and I'm like, you know what, though? That really sets the tone for like what Ultimatum is trying to accomplish. So let's leave that in as the, the fact to start. By the end of Ultimatum, God, yeah. 34 named heroes and villains are uh, are killed. It's a lot. You, f- I would say, feel it, but that's wrong. You don't feel it. You see it. You're just... You're just kind of like, you let the deaths wash over you. And sometimes you don't see it. Sometimes uh, a lot of the deaths happen off screen, off panel, off page. And sometimes um, the deaths are casually reversed. I mean, I will get into, there's there's some, what seems to me like continuity mistakes of characters getting uh, mutilated, disfigured, or murdered, and then later showing up uh, fine. It's minor characters and major ones. I think, I don't know if you'll get into this, but I assume... (laughs) That it's because there were tie-ins and this happened in the tie-ins. And the literally, the only reason I actually know there are tie-ins is because I was, like, buying something on Comixology. And in the recommended feed, it was, like, Ultimatum, X-Men slash whatever. And I'm like, there were fucking tie-ins to this thing? 
Oh yeah, in the um, Marvel Unlimited version, which is what I read, at the back of each issue, they have the the reprinted like ads for Ultimatum oh. X Men Requiem number one and everything. Oh dear. Uh, from my understanding and memory, because I was so, um, the first thing I want to say to everyone mm-hmm. is that we are talking this week about Ultimatum, which is a comic written by Jeff Loeb, illustrated by David Finch, inked by Danny Mickey, colored by Steve Furcho, and lettered by RS and Comicraft. I believe RS stands for Richard Starkings and Comicraft, yep. who is a uh, prominent and popular uh, lettering house of the 90s and early 2000s. And I wonder mm-hmm. if he just put his initials here because he was like, I don't know if I want my name on this thing. I think he gets, yes, he gets the full credit in the um, trade I have. And actually, there's one more person who helped color this. Two more, actually. It was Aspen's Peter Steingerwald and Guru FX. Huh. And Guru FX is probably the most, uh, one or one of the most uh, uh, prolific colorists today. Yeah, especially in the digital coloring scene, which I don't think anyone does traditional coloring anymore. Printing not, not has completely changed. Um, anyway, Ultimatum is a um, comic. It came out in 2008. It was part of the Ultimate Universe. And we've talked about our like personal Marvel backgrounds a bunch on this show. But yeah. I came back to Marvel after a long time gone in college with Ultimate Spider-Man by Brian Michael Bendis and uh, Mark Bagley. And I read that like beginning to issue 100 or wherever we were in 2007. Mm-hmm. And then I read all the other Ultimate stuff, and what's funny is if you go back and read the Ultimate stuff, it's, like, mostly bad. There's a lot more bad than good in yeah. the Ultimate line. But at the time— They literally had to retcon—was it Spider-Man or Iron Man? Uh, Orson Scott Carr did a miniseries right at the beginning. Yeah, he did two miniseries. Oh, he did two. Oh, yeah, boy. they're, like, bad but weird and bad, like the best bonkers Orson Scott Carr writing sometimes can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I was following the Ultimates, uh, uh, comics, including the Ultimates by Mark Miller and Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah. And I have a Mm. lot of criticism about them, uh, now, but at the time it was like exciting. It was fresh and it really was doing the job that Marvel was marketing it as, which is like, do you want to enjoy interesting new takes on Marvel characters, uh, month to month? like reading and following comics, uh, not bogged down by continuity. We're going to keep it simple. We're not going to do a thing where there's like a million offshoot series and we change the numbering and the series titles like midway through a story like they like to do. It was just like, if you want to read Fantastic Four, you could just read it straight through. Hmm. Ultimate Fantastic Four, I mean. Yeah. The, how long did that last? Um, It lasted almost a good 10 years because Ultimatum is where that comes crashing to a halt. And that's in 2008. And Ultimate Spider-Man okay. number one is in 2000, I believe. Oh, yeah. that That is a long run. I never got into the Ultimate Universe. It's never. For the best. Never did. I think that's also our age difference. I know other comic people, like critics and people who write about comics on the internet who are closer to my age who had a similar experience with those Ultimate books. Mm-hmm. It was just like the thing to do at the time. And now it's gotcha. not the thing to do. <laughs> it's not no. how I would recommend going about it. No, it's I've had some interactions with it. Not much. Uh, I actually have. I don't know if it's Ultimate Spider-Man volume three. I got it for 25 cents at a, at a book sale. Uh, that, <laughs> it's in the, the, the little digest size. The Sarah Pacelli illustrated one. No, I think it's Mark Bagley. 
Mark Bagley came back and did a bunch after he left and Pacelli took over for a bit, but Bagley sub would sub in all the time. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, so I was doing a bunch of research because um, a big the question I went into this wanting to answer is like, how? Why? Why did Ultimatum happen? Who let this happen? How many people had to be complicit to get this to like print this this atrocity? Yeah. Um, and maybe even like, how did we get here in general? Like within the continuity, like what? That I'm more prepared fuck? to answer because I, I read all the Ultimate Comics back in the day and some of them I revisited, oh. but not many. Okay. Um, But I found, so in my reading about this, I was looking for interviews where they would, maybe the creators were promoting the work. And it's really hard to find these creators talking about uh, this. And in fact, um, so I found uh, published on Slate, originally published on Vulture, uh, like a 2015 article by um, comic, cool comic book guy I follow on Twitter, Abraham Reisman. Abraham Reisman? Do you know that guy? Um, the name sounds familiar. Um, he, uh, I've seen him get published in loads of cool places writing comic book stuff. So this was like a requiem for the Ultimate Universe right around the time that Hickman was destroying it all in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and it came up on my Google search because uh, the quote that was highlighted was, um, I reached out to Jeff Loeb for an interview, but was told he would only speak to me if we didn't discuss Ultimates 3 or Ultimatum. Oh, wow. So in the, like, Abraham Reisman history of these 10 years of comics, Jeff Loeb uh, was like, yeah, you can interview me, but not if you ask me about the comics that I wrote. Didn't he write other comics? For yeah. Ultimate? Um, Just not these two. No, he didn't write uh, any other Ultimate comics that I can recall. Maybe an issue here or there. But he, like, Jeff Loeb wrote Marvel comics. He wrote X-Men throughout the 90s. And around yeah. this time, he is writing a much reviled run on Hulk, which was one of the best-selling comics when it was coming out. Wow. Jeff Loeb also has a prolific uh, film career, um, including uh, he wrote, was it Teen Wolf? Was that the movie he wrote? Yep. He, uh, oh. uh, Teen Wolf was his first uh, screenwriting credit, if I recall. And yeah. um, he's done he's done a lot, and we've talked about him before a little bit. Yeah, I first became aware of Jeff Loeb when I saw his name in the credits of the show Lost in two thousand and five. Oh, he was he was one of the credit one of the writers on that. So he uh, the Lost showrunners recruited a bunch of comic book writers to write individual episodes, including a really pretty good one written by Brian K. Vaughn. Oh, interesting. Um, Jeff Loeb was responsible for a bunch of really bad episodes in season two. And I was like, <laughs> why are all these episodes so bad? Who wrote them? And then I saw Jeff Loeb's name. And that was how I became aware of Jeff Loeb. Um, Jeff Loeb had a lot Not of fans. Not an auspicious start. <laughs> no. And he has a lot of, Jeff Loeb had a lot of fans. People like his uh, Marvel color books. You know those ones? Mm-hmm. Daredevil Yellow yeah. and Spider-Man Blue. Mm-hmm. Hulk Gray. Hulk Gray. And he wrote a bunch of uh, DC stuff, mostly Batman stuff, that um, won some Eisner's, is pretty well-received, like um, Long Halloween. I love you're just kind of like, yeah, I was going to say, you're just kind of like, yeah, he wrote that Long Halloween thing. I can't stand Long Halloween. Oh, really? Yeah. That's one of the first Batman things I think I ever read. Uh, I just stumbled across it in a Barnes & Noble. The... the bat, The other Batman comic he's famous for is Batman Hush, and I actually like Hush better than Long Halloween. Hmm. Um, okay. But I think Jim Lee has a lot to do with that. Like, Jim Lee drawing uh, Batman action is just, like, feels legendary, even though Jim Lee uh, doesn't respect women and has some problems. Mm. Uh, but that dude can draw Batman jumping, asking David Finch, which we, we talk about David Finch uh, shortly. Um, okay. 
But anyway, I don't even like that Jeff Loeb work that's considered his better work. Uh, I, I don't think is is very good. And Ultimatum is not considered uh, his his better work. Goodness, no. Um, but in trying to understand uh, Ultimatum, I was like looking back at the Ultimate Universe so far, and I found in this Abraham Reisman piece, um, he got Mark Miller to to speak on the record, and uh, he got a quote that I really found interesting. Okay. Which was, um, this is Mark Millar speaking. Um, People would say, I joined the army after reading The Ultimates because I wanted to make a difference in the Middle East. And I was like, well, I kind of meant the opposite of that. Miller recalled with a laugh. What? What? Yeah. What's your reaction to that? Yeah. (laughs) Hold up. Hold up. Hold up. This Um, is like every time I hear Mark Millar talk about Civil War and it's like, yes, Tony was the good guy. And we're all like. What mirror universe are you living in? Um, yeah, and because, like, you know, you've, it sounds like you haven't actually read The Ultimates, but you know The Ultimates by reputation now, right? Yeah, I do. And what would you, how would you characterize that reputation? Uh, super pro-military, especially after 9-11. Like, it's, join the military, be like Steve, he's Mr., he's Mr. 21st Century you know, black ops man. Maybe not black ops, but he's he's the super marine, I guess. Yeah, and um, he's not a good, and he's kind of an asshole. Uh, issue Ultimates Volume One, Issue Number Two or Three. So one of the very first issues that Mark Miller is writing of Ultimate Cap is him ends with him saluting President George W. Bush and just unironically saying, "We won't let you down, Mr. President." Hmm. Um. Which is really striking to go back now. Like, I, at the time, I remember that being pretty shocking, and it's even weirder now. Yeah. But Ooh, that, that's wild. That all being said, uh, there's other Miller quotes in this article where he talks about um, how he grew up in Scotland, which is a pretty lefty country, and how mm-hmm. he sees himself as pretty lefty, which I believe him to be involved in Scottish conservative politics, like, to, today in 2022. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's interesting to me that in 2009 or whatever he considered himself a lefty um but what he thought was left about his views is like a distrust in authority and i do think when you're reading mark miller's ultimates you understand that he understands that steve rogers isn't supposed to be a nice guy and ultimate steve rogers and he's like Mm -hmm. scottish so this is obviously like a sort of arch parody of a certain american machismo Uh uh-huh from the perspective of an outsider but it's definitely like this michael bay trying to have your cake and eat it too that if you call attention to the thing that you're allowed to just have it then suddenly ah and like i was aware of the you think this letter on my forehead stands for france bit that captain america does pointing to oh yeah (laughs) um but you know what one of the reasons why that fails so much as satire is because the joke is really funny like that's that's a funny scene i think i think it works i have i don't know the scene i just know the one panel i'm like it is kind of funny but it's also uh it's it's Oh boy, that's just, but that's unironically what those like Bush era macho uh, war loving guys would have said around that time, and then all cheered. Yeah. Like that was it, the parody was maybe too subtle with Mark Miller, and then also like all of the darkness and sexism and uh, sexual violence that he puts in there, like kind of betrays like maybe not a sanctity for life that I associate with some of the values of the left. I don't know. 
I don't know. I've never... I say I've never liked a Mark Millar comic, but that's not true. I like Red Sun. Yeah, some of his some of his stuff is pretty good, but... But despite most him, of it's, despite his talents, not because of Yeah, them. it often feels like despite his talents. All, yeah, I have thoughts on Mark Millar's stuff. Not not worth getting into here. Um. Yeah, but he's just he's mostly. But I, that's an interesting thing. With the, but that's interesting that. So I think from the context, part of what's going on here is that cynically, Jeff Loeb is being hired to do Ultimates. Um. I think Jeff Loeb is like a pretty professional guy in a certain sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Like uh, wants to make his employer happy and do the job he was hired to do. Um. I know by reputation, Jeff Loeb sounds like he's really personally kind to people in his immediate orbit. Uh huh. I have a close friend who uh, worked on the Daredevil show. Yeah. Uh, I was in the hospital when Daredevil season two came out in 2015 or around then. And um, my friend was going to visit me uh, in the hospital. And when Jeff Loeb heard this, made me a Daredevil themed care package because he heard I was a Daredevil fan. I still have all this Daredevil merch that Jeff Loeb sent me in the hospital. Oh, that's really sweet. Yeah, just because just because uh, someone who worked on his show in the props department at the time, I believe, um, mm-hmm. just uh, was like, oh, I'm on my way to visit a friend in the hospital. And then Jeff Loeb's like, can I send a gift to a person in the hospital? That's like a kind thing. And I really think he like that he meant that. I'm looking at my Daredevil Legos that he gave me right now. <laughs> They're on my shelf. Um, but we also now know that behind closed doors, and like less behind closed doors than we, he maybe would like in hindsight, uh, Jeff Loeb like made quantifiably racist decisions and mm-hmm. uh, said some things while he was working on those shows that was like pretty obvious to anyone watching them. And then it turns out that it was uh, malicious and not negligent. Mm. Uh, it's particularly like anti-Asian yeah. violence in those shows. Yeah. Um. So like I characterizing Jeff Loeb is really tough. And another big uh, element in all this is of course, uh, that in um, uh, in tw- 2005, so a few years before this comic, uh, Jeff Loeb's uh, oh. 17-year-old mm-hmm. son tragically uh, passed away. Yeah. And Jeff Loeb's comics after then get really dark um, and have a lot of things that I can't help but see like really rooted in that. And Ultimatum was, like, one of the ones where I was... At the time this was coming out, I remember everyone being like, yo, Jeff Loeb's son died, and now he just wants to burn the world, which I think is obviously uh, lacking nuance and maybe not a nice thing to say about a person you don't know personally. But, like, that was the vibe in 2009. I was going to say, if the only thing you have to go on are the comics, then, yeah. And I don't know how... I was trying to think, I'm like, how big was social media for creators at that time? Nothing. Definitely not as big as now. I mean, Twitter's not even, Twitter is just becoming a thing in 2009, 2010. Yeah. So, not even easy access. And I can, I promise you, they weren't promoting this comic on Facebook. Goodness, no. Um, They were probably barely promoting it in comic shops. Anyway. Uh, Ultimatum is a follow-up to Jeff Loeb and Joe Matarera's Loathsome Ultimates 3, which begins with, um, shortly after, uh, Hawkeye murders Black Widow in cold blood because she murdered his family in cold blood. The Avengers are now sitting around the living room in Avengers Mansion watching a sex tape of Black Widow and Iron Man and critiquing it. Uh, that is the opening of Uh, Ultimates 3. 
Oh, uh, give give me a second. <laughs> um, we don't have to talk anymore about Ultimates Three. It's just that's the kind of that's the note that that okay. comic starts on, and we Jeez. which leads to Ultimatum. And I think it's also I was looking at the sales charts. Ultimates Three sold really well. It was like a best selling Marvel book every month. There was an issue in print. What were the other books like? In 2008, 2009, we've been reading some for the book club. Like, uh, this was coming out around the same time as the beginning of Annihilation. God. Um, that and, just shows the, the cachet the Ultimate Universe had. Oh, yeah. Ultimate, I mean, well, the Annihilation stories were mostly pretty good comics. Uh, yeah. Even though you could see some shared uh, unfortunate elements, but uh, those are, mm-hmm. like, good stories that read pretty well. Uh, Ultimates, Ultimatum, however, um, the first issue uh, was the number one selling book in November 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, as happens often in comics, each issue started dropping off precipitously. What's really interesting, yeah. though, is up until 2008-2009, Ultimate Comics in general were leading the sales. Uh-huh. And it never, Ultimates never recovered. After Ultimatum, nobody really cared about the universe anymore. And, you know, they well, they change their approach, and they let some more interesting writers do some crazy things instead of, uh, I would call it pretty creatively conservative up until that, until, until this point. Mm-hmm. They just like let people run wild in a, in a sandbox, and that's um, uh. and and that has its merits. Uh, there's some Hickman stuff in there I really love. So like titles became kind of more niche. Yeah, niche is exactly the right word. Uh, the Ultimate Universe mm-hmm. went from being the the popular cool thing to being the niche thing that you're always apologizing mm. for. <laughs> um, and then the last yeah, thing I think I, see that. I want to note, note here is that um. David Finch was a real critical darling at the time. Uh, even in these issues, people praised his artwork. I, um... Yeah, his artwork in this I mean, is bad. His... His art itself is not bad, especially when you consider, like, this is the era's look in terms of, like, the way bodies are drawn, the way characters uh, emote, you know, people don't really go off model... But it's nasty, and, like, the panel, like, the comic part, the comicking part is very bad. Yeah, it's really bad comic book storytelling. There's a lot of clarity problems. And just, like, the thing that he's drawing most of the time is just various characters getting turned into, like, what looks like Hamburger Helper. Yeah. It's like this chunky ground beef kind of consistency that like lacks horror it it doesn't feel like real violence it feels like a gross out cartoon yeah um so uh, going into the comic i guess we're uh, part of the again the last player in this is uh bill jemis who's the uh, editor in chief i believe at this time he's about to oh, this is his jealous. last uh, terrible decision and then uh joe quesada takes over after him who he mm-hmm. originally discovered and hired um hmm. and i don't think there's bad blood between them as far as i know no i think uh, i don't know if they're working together but i think jemis is part of awa now i know axel alonzo is um, that, I believe all that. Um, but Bill Jemis just, like, seems like a pretty easygoing fella, all things considered. But any creative decision I know would be that is, like, specifically tied to him is, like, the mm-hmm. most horrifying shit that Marvel's ever done. Just, like, the most, like, permissively sexual and, like, embarrassing and, like, like nutso-political that it feels like it was written by a character from fucking uh, Succession or something. Mm-hmm. Bill Jemis is if Connor Roy ran a comic book company. 
And mm. for those four fans of uh, Marvel Comics and Succession out there, I hope that was funny for you. Yeah, it went over my head. Um, well, regardless, I think that what... I think that the, the the people who are responsible for this atrocious comic were trying to mm-hmm. make a comic that they thought would be cool and sell well. And so they're treating it in this completely mercenary way mm. where I don't really think that they think cannibalism is cool, but I think that's yeah. what they thought of. They thought there was enough people who would give them money for that. I, they, I guess they thought the readership of... A Mark Millar, Ultimates Avengers book. Brian Bendis, was, yeah, yeah, would really love the super ultra violence of the two thousands ramped up to like these ridiculous proportions. I mean, wasn't correct me if I'm wrong, uh-huh. but didn't Ultimates three have? Uh, was that the comic where Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver have their incest relationship? Yes. And there was was there was something else. In I think 3? this comic has a lot of the stuff I'm thinking of. Um, possibly, but I guess the transition from Miller to Loeb with this stuff is that Miller always seemed like he was making a really stupid point and then patting himself on the back and smirking about it. Mm-hmm. And Loeb's take on this horror is almost like Dadaist. It's all, it's like surreal. <laughs> Things don't follow each other, and they just like swerve into a lurid <laughs> image, and then which has no impact. And Mark Miller like uh, really was working with like there was characters. They were broad and unlikable characters, but like uh, they were characters, mm-hmm. and you understood kind of what motivated them and stuff. And with Loeb. And then, but then my ultimate conclusion, all that, no pun intended, okay. I will use that word a lot. Um, okay. Is that in doing so, in treating this as this like lazy mercenary assignment, I think he shows what he's really about in like a number of ways because he's like going back to his default storytelling moves. And I think that that like really shows you something about that writer that these are, uh, mm. uh, which I will point out as we go through, but like moments of violence, of sexism. Uh, that really betray what he does, what, what is valued by these creators who made this book happen. Like, yeah, I I think that in trying in trying to cynically appeal to people, they really showed who they really were. Uh, yep, I don't have anything more to say about that. Well, uh, I have one last question. Be t- okay, go for and it, and then we'll head into that commercial break. Is okay. Um, so just like now, going into we're talking about the comic for real. Going into the comic for real, what was uh-huh. the most shocking shock for you? <sighs> you seem unprepared. No, I'm. Or, or no, not unprepared, but there were a few of the like the big shocking moments are just so infamous that. I did, uh, you know, I knew about it going in, like the stuff with the blob and yeah, that's the most famous um, horrific thing. Um, yeah, the and image of Doctor Strange, cannibal, yeah, cannibal Hulk, uh, Doctor Strange's head being popped off like a tube of toothpaste is the one that haunted my nightmares from this. Yeah, I that 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 was one of the shocks. I think, I you know, 
this might sound very pedestrian, but the biggest shock was the fact that, you know, the first issue ends, which we'll get to, but the first issue ends with just Manhattan and the whole world kind of being flooded. And just, I want to say half the deaths in this thing happened in that one scene. And that there were deaths that stick of major characters. I was like, half the Fantastic Four are killed. Uh, somewhat. Uh, I, I think they're all of. back by the end. No, I thought, uh, isn't Johnny dead dead? Uh, no, we'll talk about what happens to Johnny when we get up oh, to Oh, Jesus. No, all four of them okay. live. Fine, the X-Men. <laughs> yeah, but most of the X-Men are dead. Yeah, most of the X-Men are dead. Like, those, that, that whole, that scene shocked me. I did not see it coming. I knew they were building to something, but I didn't see, like, this. I didn't think this was, like, super apocalypse now. Yeah. Book. Uh, well, we're gonna go through that. We're gonna talk a little bit about the ultimate characters. We're gonna talk a little bit about some of these atrocities. We're gonna go meticulously through this book. Uh, because Jesus that, because I okay. lost, because I lost a bet, and I am, uh, doing, <laughs> I'm living up to my end of this bargain. Um, but before we dive into the heart of darkness, we're gonna take a commercial break. Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach, and I'm Walter. Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on MultiversityComics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. And welcome back. We are here talking about Ultimatum, a 2000s, I don't remember the exact year, and I cannot be bothered to remember, <laughs> uh, Ultimate Universe event, which is infamous, and we're going to go into it issue by issue because we hate ourselves. And Jaina lost a bet. We're sticking to it. I'm sticking to it. So, we start on an extremely weird note, which is um, Reed Richards proposing marriage to Sue Storm. Yeah, that was uh, surprising. Yeah. I did not realize they were not married already, and this is, what, eight, nine years into the Ultimate Universe? Yeah, I mean, in the Ultimate Universe, the Fantastic Four are coded much younger. They're not, and they're not like war vets or anything now. They're, they're kid, they're grad school aged. Um, oh, okay. And Sue is actually probably the more brilliant and gifted scientist than Reed in the Ultimate Universe, which is a fun angle. Yeah, that is a good angle. Um, she's like a biologist. They have like different uh, areas of expertise, but like, but mm -hmm. Reed's flaws end up mattering more in the Ultimate Universe. You know that those comics are a mixed bag, but a lot of good, good ideas. Yeah, and their parents are around, which I don't think was really a Kate really a thing in the main Marvel Universe. Yeah, Ultimate uh, Sue's to... parents, Sue and Johnny's parents. Yeah, they've shown up on that occasion, but it's definitely, it feels more like a grounded family drama in a way that the Fantastic Four in 616 always feels like as fantastical as it gets. Yeah, I mean, they don't sound like people, but... Um, yeah, they don't That's a like different people. problem. Um, but, but, the, but like, again, in that way where the first issue kind of feels like a story... That's a good story. His marriage proposal gets interrupted by the apocalypse. That's an idea for a story. That's worked before. Mm-hmm. 
But then we jump over to um, Tony Stark talking about dreaming of bathing in a martini, which doesn't even make sense to me as like a thing to say. And then Cap is like, nonsense, Tony, we got to go on patrol, which is also crazy to me. The idea that in the Ultimate Universe, this is just one of the many places where I think they blend the lines and they don't understand the characterization of these guys. Yeah, and then Tony makes some crack about stop thinking about another man's wife. And I'm like, what does that mean? I have no context for this line. No one mentions anyone else. There's, like, that is indicative of the problems with the dialogue writing in this entire book. And that if- one exchange, that one panel perfectly sums up all of the problems. It's even worse than you think, because in this case, I believe they're, refer- they're talking about the Wasp. Uh, okay, was that the previous disaster? Yeah. Probably in Ultimates 3? It's been a while, but I believe that Cap and, yeah, uh, Cap and Janet have kind of... Janet's in, like, a love... I can't even make up the polygon because it's four-dimensional. But um, everybody wants to do Jan. Jan's married to Hank. They have a, like, viciously abusive relationship, but they stay married. And everyone has, like, weird jealousy feelings about it. But what I was trying to say is that it's even worse than you realize because later they're going to also obliquely refer to things that haven't even happened. Like, like he's going to refer to events that maybe he imagined and forgot to write about. We'll get to it. Um, Oh, boy. But I was more struck by, um, why is Captain America going on patrol in this universe? He's, like, an employee of the U.S. government. Why is he, like, swinging around the city like like a Spider-Man vigilante? looking for random uh-huh. crimes. It's just like it's a really interesting one of those places where like, so Jeff Loeb's idea of superhero criminal justice is that um, the government employs freelance like vigilante mercenaries to rough up who they don't like. And one of them is nearly constantly drunk. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. We, then we, we cut to Uber Muscle Thor. Thor and Valkyrie. His, his, yeah, his pecs have pecs. Yeah, Valkyrie has no characterization. She is, like, the most shallow sex doll of a character. Um, And and then she dies, and then she's brought back. Oh, well... And she dies again? Oh, yeah, well, we'll get into her death and resurrection, but, like, uh... Uh, yeah, Valkyrie just is here to fuck. And then we cut over to, um, the Spider-Man crew. Now, the first... Uh, No, no, first, uh, first Hawkeye and, uh, Hank are talking, and... Janet's telling Hank that he looks like Ultron, and he's like, well, why is that a bad thing? Yeah, which I guess is, like, uh, that's pretty much what Hank gets up to in the 616 as well. Yeah, that's true. Um, but he's more he's more tortured about it there. <laughs> yeah, he's a real schmuck. I actually kind of uh, like a... Sh- Hank written as a schmuck almost works better than most of these characters. He's only... Because he's just a little... He's complicated. The other ones are just, like, simply assholes. Yeah. Um, and well, what struck me about the Spider-Man cut is that, uh, David Finch's New York City is so grimy 80s New York City. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't really look like 2000s New York City. Yeah, that was it. Um, (laughs) I took, there was a couple of moments in this that I was so like flabbergasted that I took a screenshot of. And one of them is in this scene where, um, so Peter is going, like he and his teenage friend group are out on the town and they're going to like meet up with their other friends. So they're going to meet Mm. Human Torch is their plan, which that's cool. I like, uh, Peter and Human Torch being friends, Mm -hmm. but his girlfriend at this time is Kitty Pride, 
and the body language in this scene is so weird. It looks like a harem anime. Peter is like cuddling really close <laughs> on the subway with Mary Jane as Kitty's looking at them and like uh, I think Gwen Stacy's here too. Yeah, she is. She's the third one with a uh, bald guy. Kong. Is that Kong. character's name? Yeah, uh, he's. I guess he's a supporting character. Uh, yeah, I like they're gonna Kong. watch The Dark Knight. Oh my god, yeah, and they're gonna watch. The, I wrote <laughs> yeah. The Dark Knight is a popular film. They're sixteen ten, but just like the fuck is happening in this harem anime that Peter Parker's apparently in. Yeah, I thought he was dating Mary Jane, and then Kitty Pride drags him through the roof and is like, gives him a kiss. I'm like. Okay. What's going on here? Yeah, so he's dating Kitty Pride. It's just that if yeah, if this is your introduction to the situation based on all the body language, it's clear that he's dating Mary Jane. Yeah. Um yeah, so I was just like right off the bat what what are we doing here? And and this it mm-hmm. doesn't make sense that this doesn't make sense because in the next scene they kiss like you say. Yeah. It's it's just bad. Just bad. Um bad. Then there's, like, a really cringe X-Men scene that really characterizes, I think, why some people recoil from the mutant metaphor because they think about its worst examples. Uh-huh. Which is where Dazzler, Beast, and Nightcrawler berate Angel for being the most passable, which I think they're trying to say passing, but maybe we didn't have that word in 2009. I don't recall. You've got a better guess than I do. Ah, uh, yeah, well, a passable is just like a... That feels unfortunate to me, but whatever. But what's yeah. wild to me is that um, they're all, like, that Nightcrawler's... That's Dazzler? Yeah, that's Dazzler. That's Dazzler? Dazzler's a punk in Ultimates. Okay. Um, yeah, so what's weird is that it makes a little bit of sense, although it's ham-fisted, to have Nightcrawler yelling at Angel, being like, your wings are not as extreme as me being blue and furry. Mm-hmm. And then Dazzler's just like, but I have a lot of piercings and tattoos, so go fuck yourself, Angel. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not how identity works. I'm pretty sure you can't say, like, I'm more oppressed than you because I got tattoos than you are bored with angel wings. That's just, like, not a relevant conversation to anything. And it's interesting that Beast is just kind of there, walking in the background, mostly not, silent. Yeah, not blue and furry. He's just, like, looks like yeah. a like a cuddly hippie. Yeah. He's got a ponytail. And so after all of these scene setting, kind of, sort of, establishing all of our main characters, uh, we don't quite go full crisis mode, but lightning. Everyone says one one word on each panel, which, you know, I actually appreciate that as an introduction to something horrible about to happen. And that's like a go-to Jeff Loeb move, and which is not to say the guy doesn't try to tell comic book stories. Like, he's got a couple moves yeah. in his comic storytelling toolkit, and that's an effective one. Mm-hmm. And even the page turn. Great use of a two-page spread. Really sells the, the drama of what should be happening. And I want to give like, David Finch the biggest compliment I'm going to give him this whole episode. Do it. He draws that flood very well. I can tell the Manhattan geography really well because of the the shot. You can see how it's coming over the Hudson, mm-hmm. and um, it really look it looks terrifying, and it looks like what it would look like if a wall of water just flooded over Manhattan Island. Yeah, just like dude drew a very effective and scary flood, and that seems like a hard thing to draw effectively and cinematically. And it's all downhill from here. Yeah, that's probably the the peak moment because the next moment is. Uh, Kitty um, 
like, you know, kisses him, uh, takes him off the train, and then uh, pulls open his shirt, and she's like, go do your Spider-Man thing, in a very I'm-the-girlfriend-in-a-superhero-story kind of way. Yeah. Um, and then what's wild is she has this line where she says, I'm going to stick stay here uh, in case some giant sea monster thingy shows up. And this bothered me so much. <laughs> I hate that Jeff Loeb knows enough to know that having the girlfriend be like, oh, go save the city, Peter, is like kind of sexist and unempowered. Mm-hmm. So he's had, he does the work of saying that Kitty Pride is going to like go off and have another adventure, but already implies that it's not a real adventure by the way he says some giant sea monster thingy and also completely like belittles her side quest. Yeah, it's it's also very, very Whedon-y in its dialogue. Yeah. Like, in, in the construction of that sentence, it's definitely influenced by... That's such a good ...trying point. to ape Buffy. You're so right. And uh, Whedon is doing um, Astonishing X-Men at this time, so he's pretty popular. Oh, this was contemporary with that? I thought he was a little later. Uh, it started earlier and went later, I believe. Ah, uh, okay. Because it lasted a long time. We, we, we missed the scene where... Ben Grimm wrestles a whale. Oh, Ben Grimm does wrestle a whale, which is a cool idea, although stupid. Yeah. It's cool I, and stupid. I could, I could have read an entire issue of him just wrestling a whale. I think that would have been fun. Not I, for here, but I think it would have been fun. I can find you a pretty fun uh, thing, Namor fights from like 2012 where he punches a whale. <laughs> okay. Um, the, but I wanted to say about the kitty thing, the thing that bothered me the most is that right after they do this, like, weed-in minimum work of making it, like, see, she's a superhero, too. Um, mm-hmm. He Peter then has the, um, he says, like, oh, you're the coolest, kitty. And kitty's like, I know. And what that interaction is supposed to, is, like, coded to mean for me is the male hero, Peter, is thanking the girlfriend for being understanding and not being a nag like that bitch Mary Jane when she was his girlfriend. Mm. who is always worried Did they date in the ultimate universe yeah they're uh, mary jane's uh. peter's first love uh and then he and gwen have a thing but then gwen kind of becomes his sister and then he dates kitty until he dies okay uh does that happen at the end of this peter Mm-hmm. no that happens in uh death of spider-man son of a okay a couple years later there's a couple years of peter after this but he's dead at the end of this he's they... missing okay, we'll, we'll get there we'll get there yeah, he's missing He's definitely missing. They, say, they explicitly say he's missing at the end. Um, okay. But what just bothered me so much was that even after Kitty, like, half-heartedly Jeff Loeb gave her a side quest that he was already uh, undercutting as he gave it to her, they then mm-hmm. proceed to have the sexist scene where the male superhero thanks his girlfriend for, like, not being such a bitch and letting him go throw himself into danger heroically. And he just, like, yeah. can't handle or understand all these girlfriends who don't want him to do that. Mm-hmm. Um... And that's, like, hackney drama, and the way he's showing self-awareness of it just, like, disgusts me in a very profound way. Yeah. I'm done. I'm done. Bad. Does she show up again in this? I literally cannot remember. Uh, Kitty shows up in some group shots towards the end. I think she has a couple of lines in passing. Um... We get a cool, coolish scene where Sue Storm tries to save the day with her force-filled powers. I was liking that. That was pretty cool. Except then she has a female using a superpower problem and passes out. Yeah. At least in this case, you could make the argument, you know, she just put, really did exert a lot of effort. Yeah. That's just such a thing. You know, Jean Grey's yeah, always yes. painting after she lifts a pencil or whatever. Yeah. Um, 
So then you think I get... she would be up up and back soon after. That's how it should go, but it doesn't. And and then the the wave hits and kills a lot of people, right? And I was trying to figure out who the first death was because this entire story is about mass amounts of death, and death is kind of the theme, if there is one. Isn't it Allison? Isn't Allison the first confirmed death? Um, like we kind of see. Uh, what's his face? We see Johnny and his father. We see um, Hank yelling about Jan. We see Warren Worthington drag Allison up from the depths. I guess Kurt and Beast are also there, and he doesn't give a shit about them. Yeah, uh, uh, if you read Ultimate X-Men, Angel and Nightcrawler hate each other, and he and Beast don't really get along either, and he's in love with Dazzler, who's in love with Nightcrawler. Gotcha. And then Namor shows up. Yeah, I, but so I think Dazzler's the first death because we see Sue die and um, and Reed thinks Sue is dead for most of the story. Um, oh, because of all the, the... She exerts all that effort. Yeah, that her, she died of superpower exertion, which, which kills hundreds of women in the Marvel Universe, I imagine. Oh, the, the implication there was that she died? I thought she was just, you know, coma or whatever. I thought that too, but the rest of the story, every time Reed confronts one of his enemies, he's like, Sue, the woman I love is dead and nothing matters to me anymore. Um, God. And she's not dead by the end of it. We follow her for a bunch of it while Reed doesn't know she's dead, but yeah, the story doesn't do a great job of parsing this, but I was curious. No. Um, hmm. and we also see Johnny seem to die as he's trying to rescue his dad, but I yeah. knew because Johnny is actually a major player in the Ultimate X-Men books that spin out of this. <laughs> um, okay. In a way that I kind of like, we could get into it or not, but, um, I knew he wasn't dead, so Dazzler is the first official death of Ultimatum. Not that the book is that interested in telling you that, it's like not even, it doesn't care. No, it, it kind of brushes over it, and... I guess all of Latveria dies. Yeah, all of Latveria uh, gets frozen, which I Mary thought... Mary Storm and Boris? I, I don't yeah. know who Boris is. I don't remember who Boris is. I think he's the Red Ghost, the ultimate Red Ghost. Oh. Are they both actually dead or just frozen? I think they're actually dead. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> confirmed kills. Yay. Yeah, all of Latveria, but they're not named characters. Um, well, then, Dr. Mary Storm. Yeah, okay. She's confirmed. I count it. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, we we know her about as much as we know Allison. Um, I just remember Dazzler from the Ultimate Comics, and I don't remember Mary Storm leaving much of an impact. But I, whatever, yeah. it's fine. Um, Kurt and Hank, he's con- they're both confirmed yeah, later. and later we confirm that we just saw um, Nightcrawler and Beast die. Two of my favorite X-Men just... Uh, got Gone. Between, yeah, got hit by a wave, look shock, and then later we hear their corpses like described in graphic detail, but we never see them. Yeah. Odd storytelling choice. And the fi- first issue ends um, with the... Oh, re- you're not going to just, just blow right past us uh, having to turn the comic on its side for a two-page spread of Charles Xavier's fucking head. Oh, you know, I didn't have to do that in Marvel Unlimited. The uh, guy Oh, you lucky man. They do this like... Sorry. You lucky, lucky person. It's all good. Uh, Charles Xavier's fucking head. See, this is this is how bad this comic is. Yeah. I apologize. Good. I'm very sorry. It's okay. I, it happens. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I blew right past... Um, the, the, the Charles Xavier uh, realizing all his friends are dead. Spread. The dead spread. Yeah. A lot of dead spreads. That's bad. Um, so how does it end? The first issue ends with the reveal that the bad guy all along is Magneto. 
Um, dun, dun, dun. And, um, and also, depending on how far zoomed away we are from him, the color of his costume changes inconsistently. When we're far away, it's the color, it's the, like, magenta and red that uh, he is in the regular Marvel Universe, but when we get closer, it's the black and red of the Ultimate Universe. <laughs> Just bothered me on this page. Um... But we both agreed that this was definitely, like, the strongest issue. So now that we've kind of, like, reflected on it, what do you think is the reason for that? I think because it tells a very straightforward story. It's the beginning of a disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, it's, it, There's kind of a clear line from beginning to end. You know, the characters are poorly set up, but that's also because they're juggling so many of them. I think it properly conveys the scale and scope of what's going on and how devastating this is going to be. And like, you know, by the end of it, we actually have a, a clear, if not villain, but like, we know we got, we got a, a trajectory. We got to stop Magneto, the earth's in danger, et cetera, et cetera. I also like how this story repositions Magneto as one of the most powerful and terrifying villains on earth. Mm Mm-hmm. I think in 2009, we were really excited about um, all the nuance Magneto had as a villain because he wasn't like this elemental force of evil. He was really uh, extreme and misguided because of motivations that are like all too relatable. Um, Yeah. And so combining that with just like the ultimate Magneto scheme, he's going to destroy the planet uh, because he's got the powers of one of the four fundamental forces of physics. (laughs) Um. I think that this, yeah, like you said, um, is right now positioned to still maybe be okay. There's, like, some inexplicable shit, but, like, we get that Reed wants to marry Sue, and that Spider-Man wants to hang out with his friends, and that uh, Angel just horrifyingly watched a bunch of people he knows killed right in front of him, and that Magneto is to blame. Like, this is a story. Yeah. It does not say that way. Uh, no, it does not. Um... So in issue two, we find out that uh, Eastern, all of Eastern Europe is frozen solid. They also keep alluding to volcanoes in South America. Yeah, I don't know what what's up with that. I guess uh, Tierra del Fuego and all of the the those islands start exploding because the tectonic plates change shifting. Yeah, I, I just think it's so weird how we only ever see the death in New York and a couple of other places, and then a couple places get mentioned, but we never see them, usually in the southern hemisphere of the Earth. Yeah. Um, well, that, that tracks for for Jeff Loeb. By, by issue two, the flood has already abated, um, and um, the heroes are already blaming this on the world's greatest dirtbag, Magneto, <laughs> which I think is a... Uh, a whole lot, but um, this just reminded me of a fun piece of Marvel trivia that I love. Do you know? Okay, what is it? Do you know how the uh, Xavier family made their fortune? No, I don't. Um, in Marvel continuity, Professor Charles Xavier's father was the engineer who invented the pumps that unflooded New York City when Namor fought the Human Torch in Marvel's Golden Age. Wait. So what? In the Golden Age, in the 1940s, Marvel, yeah. the first Marvel crossover was the Submariner versus the Human Torch. Mm-hmm. This was the robot Human Torch, not uh, yeah. Johnny Storm. It was like Hank Hammond? Um, John Hammond. Ha- Jim Hammond. John Hammond? Jim Hammond. Um, but they fought, and Namor floods all of New York City. 
But then by the next mm. issue, because it was comics back then, New York City's not flooded anymore. And in some Marvel issue, I don't remember which, uh, but they uh, they then recap it in um, X-Men Grand Design. Uh, they make it so that Professor X's dad is the one who unflooded the city, his company. Oh. And mm. I was just thinking about, because we keep on cutting from Xavier to New York City is no longer flooded, I was just like, gee, Xavier, you could have made your daddy's fortune in the Ultimate Universe, too. <laughs> um, well... Maybe by uh, issue two or three. Yeah, I mean, the water's already gone. It's not a big deal. They already killed a lot of people. Um, anyway, but I was then next struck by um, Tony crashes through a window, holding, a, cradling Steve Rogers' body, who Steve almost drowned. Tony saved him. He woke up, they exchanged words, and now he's like in a coma again, and Tony's slamming his body face first through windows. As you do, he can take it. Um, I know this is like a small thing to nitpick in something, but it was just like it, it it's so characteristic of this comic that um to show how emphatic Tony Stark is, he slams through a window right next to a door. Like the door is drawn in the same panel. He could have used yep. it, it. But just like uh it's it's such an emergency, I can't not slam my friend's body through plates of glass. That w- that was my note at this section. I was like, Tony, the door is right there. Yeah. And the next bit of Ultimatum is uh, reflective because, uh, which is the right story beat here, where people are reflecting on the tragedy. Um, it's just not interesting. It's not interesting. My next note says, uh, Carol Danvers's breasts frighten and upset me. <laughs> uh, I think the mass of both of Carol Danvers' boobs in this comic, both out, like, together outweigh me. It's, like, so frightening. Um... They do not look like real human breasts, and they make her look so uncanny to me. Yeah. And then Tony's just an asshole to her. Yeah, they... As you do. They got a thing in this. They're on, they're on again, off again. Okay. They're fucking. Okay. Um... And like, and then we cut. To, uh, yeah, we don't have to get that into it unless you find it really interesting. Yeah. But we cut to um, Hawkeye and Giant Man have like a confusing conversation about domestic abuse, where they say very little about the topic. Yeah, it was uh, that whole scene. I was like, all right, sure, whatever. Yeah. Well, and again, that's the right place for a reflection like that in a story. It's just not interesting. Mm-hmm. Um. You mentioned Namor, and I, I blew past him, but Reed um, at this point thinks that Namor caused the flooding. Which I wrote like an idiot. Well, he he's still... Oh, yeah, he's still blaming Namor. Yeah, I think he's like... Namor, there's like a submarine, and Reed's like tied it up with his stretchy arms. Yeah. Uh, Namor's, Namor's tied to the front of his ship yeah. with his stretchy arms. There you go. Uh, and then he gets abducted, uh, you know, alien style. Like a cow up onto Doctor Doom's ship. Yeah, I just, I found it pretty annoying in this that the one thing Reed Richards is good for is you gotta make him be right, and when he's wrong, it's gotta be a big deal, and Reed Richards just doesn't contribute anything to this story. He's just wrong about everything consistently. You can see him fuck up again and again. Stupid little chin. And his stupid little chin and his dumb glasses. Yeah. And so we meet Zarda, the power princess. Yeah, Zarda the Power Princess is here from actual Squadron Supreme. So you were texting me that you had some Squadron Supreme feelings. Yeah, so the... Everything with Squadron Supreme, I actually really enjoy. I think Gary Frank drew a lot of it. It is... 
Yeah. Very dark. Yeah. It was written by my man, J. Michael Straczynski. He never got to finish it because... So what happened? He wrote a series. Then they had a crossover with the Ultimate Universe called Supreme Power, which was written... JMS, I think, did the first three issues. Bendis did the second three. Jeff Loeb did the last three. Uh, that whole event is a big nothing burger and a mess, but it ends with Zarda staying in the Ultimates universe and Nick Fury being kid- kicked out and locked away in the Squadron Supreme universe because the whole crossover was his fault. There was a giant, there was like a mutant virus from another dimension. It was stupid. It is stupid, but yes, yeah. uh, now Zarda is chilling with Doom, I believe. I'm sorry, with Van Damme. Van Damme? Yeah, uh, Victor Van Damme is his name in this universe. Are you pulling my leg? No, they say it multiple times. What? I how, will... did I... how did my eyes just gloss over that? When we get to the last page of this, I will send you a screenshot, and, you'll be able... and you will see how much he is named Van Damme. Please, please do it. Um... Anyway, I'm just frustrated with how useless Reed is in this story. Ultimate Reed <laughs> is probably one of the two Ultimate characters who had the most last... Uh, three, if you count Nick Fury. Mm-hmm. Um, and Miles Morales, who had, like, a lasting impact. Yeah. Um, but I... Th- Sadly. Uh, my next note says, Oops, Valkyrie's dead, I guess, somehow. We didn't really see her die, um, but Thor is now in some sort of... He calls it Valhalla. It doesn't really look like Valhalla. Uh, I wrote, of all the upsetting looks that men dreamed up for women in this comic, Hela is the most. And guess what? This was another two-page spread. You had to turn on your side. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, It was deeply upsetting to have to do that. um, It's like like Witchblade, but like the worst of it. That's so exactly right. It's like Witchblade. It's just like a thong made out of chains. She um, contributes nothing, too. She's just there to be kind of o- very overdrawn in red leather. Yeah. And Hella does my the bit that is my second most infuriating part of this entire story. Uh-huh. We'll get to my most towards the end. Okay. But number two... Is that um, so? Thor demands back his girlfriend Valkyrie because uh, uh-huh. Hela is a goddess of death that has her soul. The cosmology of this isn't important, so don't sweat it. Mm-hmm. But then she shouts, "Defeat my fallen warriors, and you will be rewarded for a price." And I immediately just wrote, "I thought the price was having to fight all your warriors, you jackass." <laughs> Just no, like, no, no, no. That doesn't make any sense to me. Just like do this challenge and then you will be able to buy something. It's just like not how transactions work. It's not how magical transactions work. It's not how you buy something at the supermarket. You can't say defeat all my warriors and then you will have something for a price. And Thor doesn't even blink at this. He's just like, all right, where are the warriors? Let's go. And this comes back to bite him in the ass later. But just like... But he's... Uh, he, he's- He's uh, he's not smarter than a bag of bricks. That's true. So it's like story justifiable. Just as a reader, I shouted at my book at the time. I was just like, "What is? What does that even mean? That's not how you do bargains." And uh, I was too busy being angry at the layout. <laughs> Good thing I had to God. turn it on my side. And yeah, no, and- no, no, no. The 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 splash page where where the four price line happens. Uh huh. That's a regular two-page spread, but because David Finch really wanted to, to see the motion blur of Thor's sword, it like he kind of makes the border of all the panels 
but it's bad comicking because my eye is immediately drawn to this fucking sword that's been slashed across the page that I'm drawn into the four Valkyrie side. And I don't, I missed this, this whole left section at the beginning. I read the first panel and then I went straight to the rest because that's what the page is asking me to do. Yeah. Then even if you go back and read what you missed, uh, it's already messed up the story in your head. Now the events aren't in sequence. Yeah. And Hela's just kind of standing there having these Valkyrie, not Valkyrie, having these, these, the hordes of Valhalla fly out of her chest. Yeah. It's not good comic storytelling. I, that one line really bothered me. The whole, I guess, uh, Thor's sword is kind of cool. Um, yes. Then, uh, there, and there's two more things that happen in this issue, which is one, the most infamous scene of the whole series happens, which is, uh, <sighs> the blob, Fred Dukes, uh, cannibalizing the wasp. <sighs> it's a nasty page. It, 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 we get a full splash page for this too. Oh, it's a it it's says, it's the um it's the main attraction clearly. They and they they yeah. know it. They know it. And he says tastes like chicken. <sighs> Not even clever. I, so you know about this page, right? This is the page that gets copied over and over again. Yeah. That's uh deeply unsettling. Um I'm sure you're also wondering you're just like, "Wow, Ultimate Blob seems like he goes hard." Right? Just does like, he otherwise? No. So that's, that's the thing. He, he, this is the first time he looks monstrous like he does in this. This all like this entire fat phobic riff that I really don't care for. I, it's just like unfun. Mm-hmm. Not to say that Blob isn't often a fat phobic punchline, and not to say that his other characterization was like uh, so laudable. Mm-hmm. But the evilest thing that Blob did um, prior to this was one time he catfished uh, the Beast. Uh, he meets, That's it. He meets Beast on a chat room, and then he pretends to be like a cute girl, and um, and just just to troll and embarrass him. Um, and it was like a really from the headline <laughs> story about like the dangers of trolls on the internet. Okay. In like 2005 or whatever, if you can imagine, yeah. in like an AOL chat room. Yeah. Um, and then shortly before Ultimatum, we find out that the Blob is the illegitimate father of Firestar, Liz Allen. Okay. Um, and she was about to, like, reconcile her relationship with him, and Liz is kind of a superficial bully, so being the kid of a character who's, like, a walking fatphobic punchline was, like, a a character growth for her, I guess. I guess. Snap to this, Bob, Blob is a cannibal, tastes like chicken. God. That's real terrible that makes this even worse that's what i'm right it's so upsetting because blob was a character not a great character but like there was a couple of things there and we threw all of that out and now his most famous moment is going to be this cannibalism which like you know cannibalism kind of casts a shadow in your other achievements yeah just just a little bit um and the (sighs) taste like chicken thing it also upsets me because like it would be great if that shocking moment was, like, delivered with, like, a darkly funny line. I can't think of one, because I wouldn't try to imagine this scene, personally. Mm-hmm. But the Taste Like Chicken is, like, you say that because you're trying to show how, like, innocuous and, um, like, familiar and safe it tastes. And that's just, like, not the point of the vibe of the scene at all. Like, the joke, part of the, the weird horror of the scene is how the joke doesn't vibe with 
what the image is trying to sell. They're they're at opposed purposes. Yeah. It's real bad. God. Anyway, the last thing that happens in this issue is that uh, Magneto um, and Professor X have their confrontation. And I gotta say, I don't love vintage 2000s X-Men movie Charles Eric fan fiction, and I can't seem to find anything else on AO3. <laughs> Listen, okay. Listeners, if you want to recommend some non-Charles Eric X-Men fan fiction to me, I am always open. Um, but I thought this was pretty good. Like, uh... For a moment, their relationship felt very what I think of those two. Being like, yeah. uh, here we are again on opposite sides, old friend. Yeah, and then Magneto's like, gotta kill him now. Well, so uh, Xavier says that, Magneto, you're, you've become a madman. And then he keeps like, compares him. You're like Pol Pot, like Bin Laden, like Hitler. And Hitler is yeah. the one that makes Magneto uh, kill him because he's a Holocaust victim. Yeah. Um, which isn't the first time that someone's done something that I don't uh, much care for with Magneto's Holocaust uh, survivor mm-hmm. status. Um, I just really enjoyed that we got Pol Pot, who, like, no shade to uh, to horrors in Cambodia, but is, like, not the dictator at the tip of everybody's tongue today. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that I think he was in 2009. Uh, then we immediately yeah. go to Bin Laden, and I just think that, like, Bin Laden, a uh, terrorist who's responsible for, um, like for some pretty horrific events being compared to, like, uh, people who, like, systematically took over whole nations and, uh... Bit of a step down. <laughs> yeah, it's just, like, I, Bin Laden's, like, oh, and being, like, the, you know, the root of all evil, uh, the Cambodian genocide, the Holocaust, and, uh, 9-11. Everyone agrees that these three things are the three worst things that have ever happened in human history. I just, like, it really, uh, is one of those moments that, uh, betrays the political sensibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not like, because this is this global, terrible thing. And then... But we don't see that story. It's only being used to, like, win uh, uh, Godwin's Law arguments, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Like, the people in Latveria, we see, but they don't matter. And the people in South America, we don't even see. Yeah. Um... Anyway, the next... issue, too. Yeah, the next issue opens up with Scarlet Witch in the thong calling Magneto Daddy. Uh, uh, well, before uh, uh. before that, we get a whole bunch of uh, a rundown of a whole bunch of people killed off off panel. Then we get just who's doing yeah. the, who's doing the rundown? Is it um, Scarlet, Scarlet Witch? Witch? Yeah, oh yeah. First so, page, okay. yeah. she's like, they're all dead. Magneto, Dazzler, Beast, Nightcrawler, the Academy of Tomorrow. Um, yeah, and one thing that we learn here that again, who's hunting havoc? It's just only Havoc is unconfirmed. They're hunting him. I'm like, who? Who's hunting him? We yeah. never find out. Yeah, I don't know who's hunting him. This is Why weird. is Jamie Madrox an army of suicide bombers? So that's the, that's the other thing I said. We gotta talk about suicide bomber multiple man. Um, I just... Okay, yeah. What... Uh, I mean, jumping a little bit ahead of this, what really... Um, fucks with me about this is that one of the multiple man duplicates tries to suicide bomb Magneto and implies that he's holding Jamie Prime hostage against his will and somehow forcing him to do a mass suicide bombing campaign. Never addressed, is it? Never addressed again. And Magneto just like kills that one duplicate and it's like not a big deal. 
Yeah, it's like, why? but why didn't he send all of the duplicates against him? Also, how did he get Thor's hammer? That happens at the end of Ultimates 3. It's kind of unexplained. And yeah, I, I wrote, um, let's make a bigger deal out of how Magneto just has Mjolnir now. That seems like tremendous that he broke an enchantment by controlling magnets. That's cool. Hmm. And... I feel like part of the implication is that having Thor's hammer is what's letting him, like, control the climate. His powers plus Thor's thunder powers, like, augmented it. Okay. It was always kind of my reading, but they never said this explicitly. No. Anyway, I don't understand why uh, Jamie Madrix is a suicide bomber. I don't understand why suicide bombings are part of Magneto's plot or not part of Magneto's plot. Like, that's all unclear to me. It's just, like, really weirdly... Do you remember when we read, also from 2009, the uh, Secret Wars tie-ins to uh, Nova and Guardians of the Galaxy? Yes. And se- yeah. Secret Invasion tie in sorry. Secret Invasion. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Secret Invasion has a lot of, like, weird, uncritical suicide bomber imagery. They're just like, wouldn't it be scary if a suicide bomber happened? Mm-hmm. And I'm just getting that, but even ickier and less reflective because it's not even about the uh, like the fear or the emotions of it. It's just like a thing happening in the background meaninglessly. Yeah, and right next to it is uh, Mystique getting choked out. Right, which is the other wild thing is that th- this Scarlet Witch in a thong is revealed to be Mystique choking Magneto because Scarlet Witch is believed to be dead at this point. Um... And while that is a thing that Mystique would do, I guess, like push someone's mm-hmm. buttons like that, it doesn't really make sense why she would, like, if she's not part of his plan, why she would, like, sneak into his base, fuck with him, get, like, choked out, watch him kill a Madrix, and then just, like, leave and not show up again till the ending. Yeah, it's inexplicable, but I guess we needed someone for Charles, for, uh, yeah, for Charles to, for Magneto. No, Eric fuck yeah <laughs> yeah for, for magneto to to monologue at and make bible quotes so that you know he's evil and mad oh, or those whatever. Are so boring those bible quotes and uh, <laughs> whatever the fuck else he was quoting yeah and, um, god sparked only noah and his family he oh, did the so Noah because he knew boring. they'd be loyal there's literally a character for magneto invented for magneto to evil monologue at and it's toad <laughs> you just have Toad walk around and Magneto's just like so many people dead this is my vi-. just like that's what you fucking do here you don't need to have uh, Mystique who is Magneto's enemy in this show up pretend to be his daughter try to fuck him and then get like sort of uh, thrown around and then run away yeah it's just like as unnecessary as Hank uh, biting off Blob's head in the next scene Jesus yeah let's 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 just move past that you get nothing to- so no, Hank nothing. biting Blob's head off is where the full nihilism sinks in for me. At this point, it's still kind of a tragedy, and it feels like it's about people reeling in unimaginable tragedy. Not my favorite mm. idea for a story, but it is a story. But once Hank is biting Blob's head off, mm-hmm. I'm just like, I feel like we need a little bit more reflection on why revenge cannibalism is like considered normal now <laughs> yeah um but like you don't want to talk about it so we don't have to linger uh Wolver- no i'm i'm good <laughs> wolverine bridal carries um nightcrawler's corpse out of the sewer which i thought fun was fun fact the page before that to page spread 
turned on its side. I didn't fucking realize this. I read it in Guided, but I gotta go back and look at these terrible side Yeah, when, when Wolverine finds uh, Nightcrawler in the sewers. Yeah, well, I was just... I, I'll, I have a thought about what that means thematically in a second, but I thought it was very romantic, and I'm into... I like uh, Logan and Kurt is like a X-Men romance that I really like. Hmm. Um, it's got when, the, the Pieta pose, too. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. Very, very Jesus-y in that. And there's also, I thought that there was one panel, or maybe it was the spread, that looked very much like um, the famous uh, Superman Crisis on Infinite Earths panel of, uh, or cover of him holding Supergirl's dead body. Uh, no, that's just a regular panel on, uh, he's not screaming, but it's him holding, him cradling him is just a regular panel on a regular page. Yeah. Um, it just always makes me think of that. That's such a good cover. Um, yeah. And I wrote, uh, Heroes Carrying Corpses of a Loved One has become most of this comic. Um, kind of, yeah. When we cut back to the uh, Thor fighting all of Hela's minions, uh, he's like, I've done it, Hela. I've defeated all your uh, your warriors. And that's when Hela remembers the price, and Thor is, like, pretty shocked. And it's just like, is there anything more annoying than something so obviously foreshadowing it and the characters just not even blinking at it? Yeah. Especially when it's like, fine, I'll let her go, but someone else has to stay. It's not even like a clever genie thing, right? It's not even like a be careful what you wish for. She just literally says, do this thing and then we'll do business. And Thor's like, okay. And then he fought a bunch of guys and then he's like, um, and then she says, uh, someone has to stay in the land of the dead. Why though? Um, I guess for people and isn't, isn't, uh, Cap also technically dead? That's why he's here. Yeah, which is also two people. And what's also confusing because um, we saw Cap, like, wake up. And it just if you were going to have Cap go into the afterlife with Thor for a big zombie fight, why have Cap wake up? Why not just make him uh, dying from the get-go? Yeah, I don't know. That's just, like, a wild little swerve to me. Anyway, I hate this more than almost anything until the very end. I've been There's, like, a thread that's been going throughout the story that I've been ignoring because we're going to talk about it all at the end. Okay. Uh, but my second I'm, least favorite thing... I'm just thing, here for the ride. <laughs> My second least favorite thing is, uh, well, it is my least favorite comic. Um, what was your yeah. least favorite that we ended up not doing? Uh, Age of Ultron? Age of Ultron. Love yeah, this Age is, of Ultron. Uh, yeah, Age of Ultron is hateable for a very different reason. We might have, okay. Well, I might want to do an Age of Ultron episode one day. Whatever. One if day. I'm really bad one day. We're not, we are, I would say we're not going as in depth into this, but like it would probably take about the same amount of time to do twice as many issues because it's a Bendis comic. Right. That's true. That's true. Not a lot happens in these comics, fortunately. Um, yeah. This is also where um, I really got fixated on how awful the gore was. I've been watching a lot of horror movies and I've been like seeing a lot of different interpretations on gore and violence and dismemberment. Mm-hmm. And just, like, mm-hmm. really don't like David Finch's version of this. It's all, like, really chunky and looks like red mucus. It's got, like, a gross, like, uh, Sam Raimi slime and guts kind of texture. Yeah, but cranked up a little. Yeah, and sometimes you see these, like, bubbles and these things that look like barnacles, like these ropey intestines, I guess they're supposed to be, and, like, innards and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it all looks so cartoonish that you're. It never feels violent, and for that reason, it's like got this uh, creepy clown effect to me. It looks like something childishly upsetting. Yeah. Um, this is one of the places where I screen capped a panel, which is um, there's um, a big zoom in on one of the Madrox suicide bombers uh, yelling about the his, his glory in like a for very the glory of, 
Yeah. I think it's for the glory of Magneto. That sounds right for the, yeah. for the glory of Magneto. Um, and um, again, just like making this the religious undertones of the suicide bomber thing that much unnecessarily uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Then Hawkeye shoots and kills one of the Madrox duplicates, which like, I don't see why that matters. It's another duplicate. There's plenty more. And he says, glory that, you multiple jackass. And... That was flabbergasting to me. I couldn't believe that was a thing that somebody wrote and got printed. <laughs> this was a this was a line that happened in the year two thousand and nine, or whatever. I feel like the multiple man is not linguistically correct because it should. I could, and that's the what it's, the joke is. It's not multiple men. It's multiple man. Yeah. But multiple jackass doesn't make any linguistic sense. It would be multiple jackasses. Yep. Also, Hawkeye, kill more guys. You got more arrows. I can see your quiver. No, no. He d- he killed one. He's good. Now he's got to yell at Hank a little. Yeah. And ready for my, my very controversial take? Do it. Hank Pym's death kind of ruled and was kind of the best part of the comic. Hmm. For me, anyway. I don't disagree. Um, I don't know if it's the best part of the comic. I still think just that first splash page might be the highlight yeah okay that's probably true that's probably the most like honestly resonant but i thought like i said i think ultimate hank pym is really shitty and deserves to die in like a redemptive way that's kind of how he set up mm-hmm. and so him growing as big as he can covered with um with jamie magic's duplicates and then well, that's uh, why he dies yeah it's a little unclear but yeah. um i was squinting at it and he goes out and he's just kind of like apologizing for being such a shithead his entire life and then all the magic duplicates explode him over the ocean and weirdly that re- it was effective for me in the same way that other superhero deaths of this era are effective mm-hmm. like uh, did you ever read uh bendis's avengers disassembled in 2004 no no I haven't. Uh, there's a part where Hawkeye is battling a million aliens and he keeps yelling, not like this, not like this. And then he grabs a Kree jetpack and he uh, launches himself into a Kree ship and explodes it. Right before he dies, he goes like this. And then he, and it's like, it's like grim and violent and like not a tone I particularly like in a superhero comic, but it was really effective. It felt like heroic in like a war story kind of way. God. Yeah. And uh, I can see that. And I thought that I Hank's it, death was similar. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. I, I'm just, I don't know if I, because the whole rest of the comic is just so bad <laughs> that this, this ending, I'm like, okay, this was the, the way to take, to go. It didn't feel like Hank's death was cheap in the same way as so many others in this comic were. It wasn't it's not gross. It was not an offensive death. It wasn't But at the same out. time, coming on the heels of Jan's death and... It's like, that's the thing that pushes him over to finally do this redemptive arc. It's like, eh. yeah, it's still kind of gross. Yeah, I guess there is some gross underlying sexism, but at least it's not chunky and gross. At least it's like kind of a beautiful and sad and striking image. Yeah, yeah. Um, it sucks so, that he's the only one that actually gets that. Yeah, Hank of Pym of all people. And, and, and it's at this point that I stop to note how many people are uh, motivated by... Um, the death of a loved one, and I kind of was interested in the fridging math on that, right? Mm-hmm. So you got uh, Reed for Sue, uh, the entire story, uh, erroneously, Sue is not dead. 
Um, mm-hmm. Magneto for his kids, which isn't quite fridging because they're not his love interest, but I included it because of the uh, part where Ghost of Scarlet Witch and a thong called him Daddy. Yeah. Um, and already the established incest in this story. I feel like it's not a stretch. Um, no. Angel for Dazzler. He's just completely like, Dazzler was the only thing I ever mattered. Um, I can, Wolverine and Kurt, I include. Mm-hmm. I feel like Wolverine was very motivated by Nightcrawler's death. Uh, Hank for Jan, like you said. Thor for Valkyrie. Then very soon after that, Valkyrie for Thor. And then uh, Kitty for Peter at the end. <laughs> yeah. When, when Kitty comes back, um, she's like, Peter's dead. And, and what's so interesting is that's the theme of the story. The story is really about um, the, the, how the tragic death of a loved one can like motivate us to go on. Hmm, I, I'm sensing some, uh, I'm sensing we've reached the thesis of this episode. No, no, no. The last line of this comic is, for <laughs> what they have done, they must pay the ultimate price. And I thought that was a good line, and I just wanted to shout that out. It wasn't wow. written by Jeff Loeb. It was, I, I looked this up. It was in the marketing material. So I think it was, uh, Jemis or someone who worked for him. Gotcha. Anyway, issue four. Um. God, yeah. So issue Here four starts with the Incredible Hulk, who in the Ultimate Universe is much stupider and meaner than we're used to Hulk being. Uh, no. Oh, yeah. We, we flash back to what happened to Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, what, the, the, mm-hmm. what happened was Spider-Man encountered the Hulk, and then together they accidentally unleash the Dread Dormammu. Whoopsies. The Dread Dormammu is... This is his first appearance in the Ultimate Universe. Huh. Um... He looks exactly like the regular Dread Dormammu, and I guess you must have missed this, and fair enough. He's wearing a medallion that has the Human Torch trapped inside it. I, uh, no, you know, I didn't miss it. I remember this, and then I promptly blocked it from my memory. Just like in the story. Because I was like, how did he get him? What happened? Yeah, that's unexplained. Where did he come from? Did he die and was locked up in there? Who knows? Who cares? Well, I actually think that it's kind of neat if you're like Johnny Storm's flames are actually magical and they're connected to the flames of the fall teen and maybe Dormammu can control. That's just like a hook I've never thought of before. And I'm like, sure. Why well, not? Yeah, but they don't do anything with it. Um, No, they do nothing with it. And in fact, they do so little that Dormammu um, possesses the cloak of levitation and it wraps around Stephen Strange and it pops his head off like a tube of toothpaste in the image that when I read this when it came out, like, shocked me and haunted my nightmares much more than anything else. Yeah, it's real nasty. David Finch captures this look of, like, fear and acceptance on Do- and horror on Doctor Strange's face that's, like, really vivid. And like you said, he doesn't have a problem with, like, drawing characters off-model for the most part. Mm-hmm. So it really, like, you, 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 he captures the last moment of this guy's uh, fear and pain, like, so vividly for me. Yeah, it's... Um, uh, but the reason why this makes me the most mad is what do you know about Ultimate Doctor Strange, Elias? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So Ultimate Doctor Strange was actually a really interesting pitch from Bendis that never went anywhere. The only real time he appeared before Ultimatum was in an Ultimate Spider-Man story where we get a lot of flashbacks as to what Ultimate Doctor Strange is like. Mm-hmm. And the basic idea is that this Doctor Strange is like a privileged, rich surgeon who did not get in a car, or who after his car wreck just got really self-loathing and used his family money on drinking champagne with his bros and playing Xbox or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then one day Wong comes in off the cold street and he's like, we need to talk about your family legacy, Doctor Strange. And Wong ends up being this like John Constantine character. 
Oh, uh, that's cool. And Doctor Strange is like Chaz in the Hellblazer comics, where he's kind uh. of like the confused lout who's following around this like much smarter um, and savvy dude. But what's fun about I would the, read that. Right? And what's fun about the dynamic that gets switched is in this one, Chaz has all the magical powers and Constantine has all the magical know-how. And so... Wong, and, uh. and Stephen Strange is not really the hero. He's just the conduit for Wong to, like, use his power to, like, save magical threats in the one story that he ever appeared in. And then there's no Wong here. Right, and there's no Wong here, and Dormammu just immediately kills Stephen Strange, and we never got a follow-up on that idea, but I really like that idea on paper. Yeah, that would... I, that would have been a really cool story. Yeah, and I always liked oh, Wong as a character and thought he deserved more to do, and that everyone is yep. always trying to make him like a manservant. And I liked also this where he's the active hero. Whatever. Doesn't Whatever. matter. Strange is dead, Wong is forgotten. Um, yeah. Not dead, Sue Storm. This is where we get confirmation that she's alive. And back up again. Yeah, back up. No explanation. Function. Yeah. She was just out of it for long enough that Reed thought she was dead. Smart Reed didn't check her vitals or whatever. Psst, yeah. Um, this is another moment that I feel like almost works, and I could see what they're going for. Mm-hmm. Which is, um, so now we have, in all the chaos that Magneto has uh, unleashed, Jormammu has just escaped. And I love in Marvel conflicts when, like, one thing spills out into another, and because... Stephen Strange died, like, by, you know, offhandedly. Now all the shit he was holding back can, can rampage across Earth. Yeah. So I thought it was really cool that the surviving X-Men, Spider-Man, the Hulk, and the two Fantastic Four members all show up and rally and defeat Jermamu, and you can feel the uh, momentum shift in the story where now the heroes are rallied. This is the group of people who's going to save the day. Um, yep. That's just like the that's the right story move for this moment, and it's actually done somewhat effectively. Even if I hate what happens to happen to Doctor Strange, and Dormammu is not that interesting, but like the heroes assembling, I was like, "All right, let's do this." It, do they even defeat him there? I think just like Hulk shows up, they fight a little bit, and then Hulk, what like pushes him back through the portal. Max, Max on Jean Grey. And oh yeah, they're G- like, we gotta find Colossus, and then smash cut to the Supreme Power Universe. Yeah. Um, Doctor Doom, I'm sorry, Doctor Van Damme is in that scene. And um, I wrote in my notes here, okay, definitively, this Doctor Doom has feet. In 1610, Victor Van Damme has hooves. <laughs> Which is true. In this universe, the event that gave Doctor Doom his powers uh, also gave him cloven hooves. Huh. Completely forgotten in this comic. He is just drawn with big old armor feet the whole time. And I am yeah. bummed. Just like, I don't love Victor Van Damme in the Ultimate Universe, but the hooves were fun. No, no, no. He's got to look just kind of like slightly, slightly discount 616 Von Doom. Yeah, he looks like Times Square Doctor Doom. <laughs> um. Yeah, but so the Squadron Supreme Angle seems to be a real hook for you. I'm like, whatever... It's just... I mean, no, it's completely wasted and useless here. They show up, they save Fury, they leave. Yeah, it's just... Literally nothing is done with it. And Fury's just, like, hanging out, and then they pop in, they're like, Fury, we need your help, and he's like, I don't wanna. And they're like, well, please. And he's like, fine. It's just, it's like, so nothing, and it's, like, just to get him back on the board. It reminds me of what the MCU movies keep doing, where they end with, like, an interesting sequel setup, and then the next movie has to take 15 minutes explaining why they're not doing that sequel and why they're doing something else. 
Yeah. And you're just watching and you're just like, then why did you set up this sequel? Why did you trap Nick Fury in an alternate dimension if the next time you were going to tell a Nick story, a Nick Fury story is him coming back? They, I don't know. Who knows? I don't, Jeff Loeb probably thought it was a fun idea. They needed to get him off the board. And then he was like, you know what? I hate all of the Ultimus universe. Let's fuck with them. We got to bring Fury back. And probably also because JMS had, I think by this time, left the Supreme Power title. It was retitled the Squadron Supreme, and he left because they moved from the Max line to regular, so he couldn't do as much. And he was like, well, I'm done. So yeah, yeah, and this is around the time he's having all the drama with Spider-Man, which then spills out into Thor. Yeah. At this point, I'm sure he's pretty done with working at Marvel. Yeah. Um, On the regular. This issue's almost done, but uh, when we cut back to um, Magneto, uh, Angel flies in. And I remember just being so struck when I saw this that uh, I can't believe Warren Kenneth Worthington III made it this far in the story. It's just like, he's like a C-tier X-Men to me. I know he's one of the original five and all, but like, whatever. He's got wings. Everyone else of the X-Men can fly and do other cool stuff. Then he gets promptly murdered and his wings torn off. Cannibalized by Sabretooth. And I'm also just like... There's like a weird amount of cannibalism. You think there would be more or less? Yeah. Um. It's just not. It's so ca- casually done. Um. This is also where, as you mentioned earlier, where Valkyrie gets killed. She jumps in and she's like, "Thor is dead because of you, Magneto." Uh, she takes off Magneto's arm with her big honking sword. Um, which is pretty cool by the standards of this comic so far, but then Magneto kills her immediately. So my status is, uh, Valkyrie definitely marginalized and killed, but her death was kind of cooler than most. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, no, she's still alive. Valkyrie at the end? Well, I don't know at the end, but right after her, her chest or neck gets cut, she's still in the next frame when Steve comes flying through the window. She's just kind of standing there looking nonplussed. Oh, well, she got kebobbed. I thought that was it for her. Um, yeah, me too. Well, also, Magneto has his arm back in the next issue, so it doesn't matter. That, does he? he do, he's doing something, like, with his arm. I thought he just kind of cauterized it, but no. His, yeah, his uh, arm is back. you can see he's got, like, two arms and two elbows in uh, a couple of panels. It's, it's, like, weirdly cut out that you would think they did it on purpose, but then why not just draw him with one arm still? That's weird. Anyway... It is at this point now that we are going to come to the number one thing that annoyed me most reading Ultimatum. Go for it. So throughout this story, there's a pretty major Marvel hero who's been appearing, but we haven't talked about a lot, and that's Wolverine. Mm Mm-hmm. And every time we see Wolverine, Wolverine says, um, like, this time I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill Magneto for real this time. And everyone's just like, Wolverine, that's really dark. Are you sure we're going to do that? And Wolverine's just like, I think I'm going to do it. Um, and it doesn't feel like it has a lot of tension because of how cheap death, death is. And also Wolverine just kind of keeps disappearing for 15, 20 pages at a time. Yeah, he's not going on a real emotional journey about killing Magneto. He just keeps on saying it and people are just like, um, should superheroes kill? And Wolverine's like, I think they will today. Um, and you're like, fine, whatever. But mm-hmm. there was a really obvious question that I couldn't stop asking myself that I'm sure occurred to you. Which is, if this story is going to end with an epic showdown between Wolverine and Magneto, what steps is Wolverine going to take to mitigate Magneto's power over his entire skeleton, which is made of metal? Oh, well, I I hate to disappoint you, but I didn't even realize that Wolverine kept saying, I'm going to kill Magneto, 
because it was just so rote from every character. I didn't put any any significance into it. Well, I just I could feel that, and I knew that Wolverine had a big part. I remembered in the in the conclusion in the final fight, but um, I was just like so. The X-Men movie came out almost 10 years before this, the first one, where uh, Magneto, you know, puppets Wolverine and tosses him around, and Ian McKellen makes very sexy faces while doing it. Mm-hmm. And in 1994, I'm pretty sure Jeff Loeb, or he came on at this time or right after, uh, was part of uh, Fatal Attractions, the famous 1994 comic where Magneto rips all the metal out of Wolverine, nearly killing him. Ooh. Um, mm-hmm. But that's not like a new idea either. What if the Magnet Man and the Magnet Skeleton Man fought? It would be bad for the guy with the metal skeleton. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just like wondering how is Wolverine gonna like overcome this big handicap he's got in cover uh, fighting Magneto? And the scene arrives, and I would like to go through it uh, nearly panel by panel through how I was uh, playing this. All right, let's do it. All right. So right off the bat, Wolverine jumps in. And I was like, oh, so it's the element of surprise. He's going to jump out and stab Magneto before Magneto even knows he's there. That would work, I think. Um, But no, Wolverine gets out one statement, a question, an ellipses, an emphatic statement, and then a list of names with no fewer than eight periods, not commas, periods. And then he slashes (laughs) Magneto in the chest and blood sprays everywhere. Now... Time is supposed to be abstract in a superhero comic like this. Lots of times there are exchanges that would take way longer than they should in the amount of time it would take to for the actions on the page. Mm-hmm. This is something that you're supposed to suspend your disbelief for, but this comic is bad and I can't help it. And this is more in service to the stupider thing, which is, so what's Wolverine's plan here if he cares about this so deeply? Um, and the answer is he announced his presence and very slowly moved on Magneto. Still got in a slash, so I guess good for uh, good for him. This is when I noticed Magneto's second arm. We then cut to Scott and Gene. They're freaking out. Is Logan really going to kill Magneto this time? Gene is wondering. Is that like, is that going too far? And Scott's like, I don't know. Maybe it's not going too far this time. Which is like a weird conversation. And I hate uh, lip service to should superheroes kill? Because I don't think it's an interesting question. Uh-huh. Um, Logan then tackles Magneto. They fall two stories through his secret base. They keep on screaming. Logan's last words ever, I guess, because he's about to die, are like, you think you're some kind of god? Well, I have news for you, bub. God is dead, which I think is so uncool. (laughs) See, I really like that line, but not because it was like a good line. (laughs) I was laughing. I'm like, this is, that's such a terrible line. (laughs) Yeah. But it's not, it's not his final line. Actually. Oh, you're right. Oh, you're right. In fact, I, and I, I call attention to that because um, this is the moment. And I imagine that like in the time it took, if this was a real thing, this is like at least 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is when Magneto remembers he's got powers. <laughs> and yeah. Then he, mag- he, he magnet blasts Wolverine away from him. So uh, he's no longer getting all slashed up. Mm-hmm. Then he magnet controls Cyclops's visor, which blew my mind. Cause I was just like, you don't make that out of plastic at this point. Like Wolverine, it's a skeleton, but you like, know you're going to fight Magneto, bub. No, 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 no. Scott, this is Scott Summers. Smart. No. And no. no. And Iron Man. I, I heard Tony Stark is like some sort of billionaire genius playboy philanthropist. Yeah. Why would he go to fight Magneto? The master of magnetism in an iron suit, you know, one of the most associated metals with magnets. Yeah. In Avengers versus X-Men, there's a funny moment where um, 
Tony, the first big fight is between Iron Man and Magneto. And then uh, Tony starts like, you think I'm so stupid? I wouldn't have like degalvanized my suit before fighting you. So now you can't control it. And then Magneto's just like, did you think I was so stupid that I couldn't literally just like crush you with mountains that I lift with my mind and then proceeds to do that? Um, okay, that's that's pretty cool. I, I, I don't love that comic, but that's pretty cool. It's got some fun moments in it. But yeah, this is dumb. This is just Magneto remembering his powers, and then he controls Cyclops and controls Iron Man. So both of them blast Wolverine with everything they got, and Wolverine vaporizes into bubbly guts and Walking Dead-styled gore. Why didn't Scott just close his eyes? That's what I was wondering, too. Because, yeah, my understanding is that uh, it's not like his eyelids are fixed to the flap on the lens. Yeah, the lens just focuses it. Yeah, and this Tony, I, I get. Tony, you know, electromagnetism, and great, he, fine. He seems pretty irresponsible in the Ultimate Universe. He hasn't really gone up against Magneto before. Yeah. Um, God. But Cyclops, then, yeah, his whole thing yeah. is fighting Magneto. Um, but, uh, so they vaporize Wolverine. He's dead of having, and he has no plan here. The slash he gave Magneto is nothing. Um, then Wolverine's skeleton steps out of the pile of smoking guts and uh, starts, um, threatening Magneto with no lungs. <laughs> he's no organs well, he, left. He's, he's, but he gets a good stab in and he says, not yet. Yeah. Um, and again, Maybe we can pretend his, his vocal cords and lungs grew back. Yeah, it was just like, again, if this was cool, I'd be working to suspend my disbelief to make it work, but it's so not cool. Um, he fucking stabs Magneto with no lungs, and then, of course, Magneto finally is just like, oh, metal is my thing, and then he vaporizes Wolverine atom by atom. Uh, is that what he does? I, he tears the adamantium off his skeleton, but yeah, and then I guess that's what he does. He, like, separates every particle that he can from Wolverine and turns him to dust, basically. And this entire sure. thing was so frustrating because from the moment Wolverine's like, I'm going to fight Magneto, you're just wondering how. And then the answer is by the writer also forgetting that Magneto has powers for half the fight, then remembering that the fight's over and Wolverine dies forever. Yep. Um, and it's in two kind of worthless spa- splash pages. I mean, the destruction uh, the destruction page is pretty cool. I like the way they do the, the glowing effect. Yeah, that's a cool early. I do actually effect. like that. Yeah, I'll give you that, and I'll the give next, them that. The, the then him dead on the floor with everyone going, "Oh my god, he's dead!" It's kind of, kind of dull. And then Cyclops puts his fucking visor back on. Yeah, then Cyclops puts his fucking visor back on. Um, this is where the 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 conflict against Magneto hits. What is the closest thing for a while in the story to like being an idea? Mm-hmm. Which is that, as you alluded to earlier, Nick Fury has a secret, and that's one of the reasons why they're pursuing him. Um, I can explain the continuity of this, but the secret is that in the Ultimate Universe, mutants didn't evolve naturally as like a parallel species to Homo sapiens. Mutants uh-huh. were created in a lab. Okay. Um, yeah, I was like, that's kind of stupid, but sure. It's why an, not? It's an interesting different twist because... Um, as the story kind of alludes to but doesn't go out and say, the idea is that Magneto's faith is kind of shaken by the idea that he's just there by the grace of man, not by any, like, divine right or something. He's just, like, a lab accident, and that the people who uh, he's trying to kill are also, like, kind of his parents, in a way. Yeah. 
obviously that tone in your voice is the correct conclusion, which is like, I don't think that's how like racial supremacy works, Jeff. That like, I don't think that just Magneto thinks mutants are better than humans just because he finds out that uh, they were created artificially. I don't think that. I don't think that if, like, a white supremacist could was proven that, like, white people were an accident of science, they would renounce their ideology. They would continue. And Magneto, it kills him, right? It takes all the fight out of him when he finds this out. That's how profoundly he's affected by this revelation. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. part of the, the failure of this, too, is the comic isn't about mutant supremacy. The comic is, my kids were killed... Because they were, I don't fucking know why. Because they, they were, were killed. Because of, of all and the he's incest. mad and he hates the entire world. He he's not trying to kill just humans. He's trying to literally kill everyone in the on Earth. Yeah, he's killing or whatever. And they call him out a couple times. They're like, you know, how many mutants have died like on purpose and by accident. He's like, whatever. Um, he's like, I will save the few people that I want to save. I am Noah. I will have my Ark. Who's in his Ark? Him. Yeah. Well, yeah. it just it sucks because. You can tell that they were, like, uh, machinizing the reveal of the mutant origin um, to be, like, a, to be a big twist. And they deliver it like it's supposed to be a big twist, but it's not, because as you're saying, it has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. Um, two other things about this. One, Magneto yells, you think you can rape my brain at Jean Oh, Rand God, Fury. that line. Oh, God. Yeah, which is just real rich at the end of this... Uh, terrible uh slog uh um, yeah that we're uh we're really supposed to sympathize with magneto uh yeah we forgot violated. the colossus uh and and kitty blow up the is it kitty i think so they blow up the the center of the ship uh in the two things that they get to do oh no the hulk is there and the hulk threatens to eat mystique because cannibalism is hilarious yeah or something um I just and the one other thing that I wanted to uh, point out with this revelation that mutants were created. Mm-hmm. Nick Fury, when he's explaining this, which was this another sideways splash page? No. Oh my God! This we was are the done. One... We are done with the sideways splash pages for the entire comic. This was I the think. page to do it. Ugh, God damn it. Um, <laughs> nope. Nick Fury, it was like a, you weren't created by God, Magneto. You were you're not divine. You were created by a man, like a. a flawed man up you know uh, uh, and he goes oh, you know he's, he really emphasizes the singular scientist who created mutants and then yeah. i was just like who is the identity of that like forefather of mutanthood in the marvel universe is it supposed to be like uh dr cornelius or uh mr S some version of mr sinister or something who mm -hmm. i look into it i don't know Literally, it was never explained, and it's which makes Fuck. it extra weird that Nick Fury is alluding to a specific character because one wasn't chosen ever. And when there's a story, a comic called Ultimate Origin, which is pretty interesting, actually. Um, it's not great, but it's not boring like this is. Uh, uh -huh. Written by Bendis, which is about how Wolverine and Nick Fury were both captured um, shortly before World War II and experimented on. Uh, Wolverine in Can by the by Canadian government and Nick Fury by the American government, mm -hmm. and that Nick Fury secretly has immortality because he was made into the first Project Rebirth superhero. Captain America was the next one, and all subsequent okay. uh, superheroes in the Mar like Spider Man in Ultimate Marvel are offshoots of the Nick Fury experiment. 
Gotcha. And Wolverine killed everyone at the Canadian facility, and that's how mutants got loose into the world. That's how, like, the mutant strain got loose. Um, but okay. So I think it's so funny that Nick Fury is just, like, making this grandiose statement about how flawed the uh, scientist was who created uh, mutants like like it's somebody when in fact it's just like a group of faceless unknown Canadians and textually then Ultimatum is really the story about Magneto having like a uh, apocalyptic tantrum and then losing the will to fight because he found out that his dad's Canadian (laughs) and like maybe same Humongous can say and it implies that the whole thing was religious too yeah because uh, he keeps making these God references and that he's, you know, whatever. And then when Nick Fury gives his speech, it's like, ordinary men, not God. Right, right. And he's like, oh my God, what have I done? And like, but you still would be really, like, if your neighbor killed your kids, you'd be mad at your neighbor. It doesn't matter what the, you then find out. I right. I, I really like the idea of it shaking him or him having like a profound moment grappling with that and maybe they strike while he's distracted by that, you know, processing that news. Yeah. But that's not how they play it. He completely, all fight goes out of him. He goes limp on the floor and then Cyclops just walks over and coldly executes him in a really weirdly framed page. Yeah. He's, um... It... It's yeah. weird how much of a murder it feels like. Because in my version that I was just describing, it would be like Cyclops takes the shot when Magneto's guard is down, and he's like, that would feel like a, a tense fight. But this yeah. is after Magneto surrenders, he gets down on his knees, and Cyclops executes him. And again, there's been so much horror that Magneto has been responsible for in this story that, like, I'm not saying that I would be so pure and that I wouldn't want to execute him too, maybe. It's just a weird way to tell the story. Yeah, and after all this fight has gone out of him, like, he clearly has come—he's done. Like, it's not, this isn't a play for anything. He's done. It would be more resonant, maybe not for Scott's arc or whatever, for him to, you know, be taken in or whatever instead of being just murdered here. Because that's what it is. He's given up. He's done. And they have this thing. It's like, it's supposed to be the vengeance that Wolverine wanted, but they make it all about Charles and then no one no one there even now granted almost everyone in the room like fury and ultimate reed richards are the worst uh they don't care but then is that kitty or jean gray she just cries into scott's arms i'm like i'm like that's not the reaction that you should be having in this if you really want to make it impactful yeah and Especially after the conversation she and Scott had three pages earlier. Well, I was going to say, so the weirdest part about this is you can almost see an arc for Scott, who's been in the story so little, um, making the decision to execute Magneto because it's usually Jean who is uh, implying that superheroes and X-Men shouldn't kill and shouldn't kill in cold blood. And Scott mm-hmm. keeps on being like, I don't know, Jean, maybe this time is different. Maybe we should kill him. And then he makes his choice. Like, I-, I do really see the shape of an arc there, but it doesn't seem like he wrote it on purpose. It just seems like he was uh, giving Scott generic extra dialogue and then he was a part of this decision that wasn't foreshadowed. Yep. Um, 
Anyway, we see Wolverine's desiccated uh, hand. Is he doing the Terminator 2 thumbs up? Um, I, liter- I, I literally cannot tell you. The panel is too dark. But I think, yes. If so... Maybe it's implying there's still adamantium on his claws, and therefore he'll be able to come back. Uh, if that was him giving a thumbs up, then five comedy points. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, okay, then there's like one more scene in an epilogue. Yeah. Eight days later. Eight days later. We see Kitty and Johnny Storm are both alive and at the uh, Cyclops press conference at the end. Bendis loves press conferences. When he wrote The Avengers, The Avengers would have a press conference like once every six issues. And So once an arc? Yeah. And um, when he was writing uh, 616 X-Men, mm-hmm. he constantly had Cyclops holding rallies that looked just like this scene did. Um, huh. And I just think it's interesting that, like, Bendis knew the idea of, like, Cyclops addressing a crowd that is booing him is good drama. And Bendis is right. It is good drama. And the, the scene works dramatically and is one of the most shocking parts of the story to me. Which is that after uh, yeah. after all this and after the revelation that mutants are artificially created and after eight days of discussions that we weren't privy to because they weren't on page, Cyclops is now working with the U.S. government to do mutant registration and like uh, at penalty of death if you don't register as a mutant. Mm-hmm. And the idea that the lasting change of this story is that it pushed Cyclops who believed in Charles's dream to now being so broken that his new position is that he's going to fight just as fiercely for mutant registration now is the kind of bold swerve that some of the good ultimate comics later would try. Mm. Um, This is of course completely undermined by the end of the scene in which Cyclops's face is blown off by a bullet and he dies. And also that, um, you know, he's giving this press conference and yet everyone at the press conference is kind of protesting against mutants, even though what he's announcing is basically mutant jail. Yeah. Um, they create a mutant uh, reservation, uh, essentially, uh, later in Ultimate X-Men. Mm. In a comic that I'm pretty sure it was written by one of two not-that-good guys, but um, or really bad guys, depending on which one of those guys it is. But I really like that story. I think it's uh, a bunch of stuff that Krakoa will later do a lot better, but like a cool mm. uh, early take on it. Doesn't gotcha. matter now. Cyclops' head is blown off. And I remember that this is what like broke my spirit the first time I read this comic, because... That was the last, like, cruel, nihilistic death after the disaster that was so meaningless and was anti-meaningful because Scott was making a meaningful choice that then was undermined by nothing, by his death. Yeah. Um, which I thought was, again, really bad storytelling. And we finally- And then Carol Danvers comes in and is like, I need you to come with me. And he's like, Colossus, don't make this any worse. It's like, Scott was just shot. Why are you pointing your gun at them? Um, like, yeah, it's some nonsense. It's some nonsense. Kitty has a line. It's kind of a stupid line. Um, I guess she's, she's sad that Spider-Man's gone. Yeah. Um, anyway, in the epilogue, we find out that Dr. Doom, I'm sorry, Dr. Van Dam has... Yeah, there it is. Castle Van Dam. Um... God damn. God Van Dam. Um, has Namor uh. in a tube... And what's so funny about this is this is really paralleling um, the end of the tr- of the the Galactus uh, saga, the coming of Galactus mm-hmm. in Fantastic Four. Like what is that number fifty? Yeah. 
I think uh, so. That story ends with Doom captures Silver Surfer, puts him in a jar, and tries to steal his powers. Hmm. Uh, pretty famous story, pretty famous image that this seems to be borrowing from. But it's so mm-hmm. unearned because Namor's been such a nothing part of the story. And it seems to and be... And Van Damme's kind of been something of a nothing burger. Yeah, in his entire existence in the Ultimate Universe. But it's funny because it seems to be implying that... Um, uh, Kind of similar to how Hush ends, actually, that the villain we've been following was really being masterminded in impossible ways by another villain we weren't following, and it's not that interesting. Only, that doesn't matter either, because then the thing walks in and smooshes Victor's whole dome, and he's dead. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh... That was a decision. Yeah, so it's a setup to be doing Doom has Namor captive, but then he just gets murdered, there is no more Doom... And by Ben, too. Yeah, by Ben, again, who hasn't been a character here. And now Ben is just, like, in a bloody room with Namor, and I don't know what happens next. It's never followed up on. Uh, amazing. Um, And uh, then... I think... I don't hate the way that, like, the implication that all of this is Doom's fault, but I hate the implication that this was Doom's plan. I do hate that implication, because... I feel like part of the strength of the story was giving Magneto the stature and status that is usually reserved for Doom. And so at the end of it being like, just kidding, actually Doom controlled everything cool Magneto did. It's not a big oh, deal. No, 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 no. Like, that part I hate. But the the fact that, like, Doom pushed Magneto's buttons by killing killing uh, Scarlet Witch. Right. Kicking that off. Like, his actions and then him realizing after Latveria was, was kind of you know, frozen over. It's like, oh no, this is my fault. I helped set this in motion. I have to do something to help. That I like. I guess, but that that's w- not what it is. Yeah, that would be. A that's good not doctor- what it ends up being. Well, because and what this, you're describing is undercuts. What you're describing is a good Doctor Doom story that we get like three scenes from. Yeah, and you're filling in the blanks and writing a pretty good story there, which I guess is a fan fiction <laughs> for. Anyway, we're almost done. We're almost through ultimatum. We got a final page and then a final final page. Oh God. Um. On the final page, there's another twist, a third twist, a fourth twist. I stopped counting twists. But it turns out this <laughs> entire thing out. was orchestrated by Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, who are still alive, still presumably incestuously fucking. Um, you, <sighs> Mystique and Sabretooth are in the background, so this was like a brotherhood plot to manipulate Magneto into doing a genocide. And it ends with Quicksilver putting on the Magneto helmet and being like, and now we will, like, fucking get down to real business. Never follow it up yeah. on again. Um, I don't think Scarlet Witch is, is supposed to be the person with the, the curly hair. Because Pietro kept keeps saying, you know, they shot the Scarlet Witch with this. Not they shot you. And then he says, my father, not oh. our father. Well, then I'm extra confused. It literally doesn't matter. It, this is never followed up on? Not that I recall. I mean... Ultimates goes in a very weird direction, and some of the stuff, like uh, Ultimate X-Men, is about, Jeff Loeb keeps writing Ultimate X-Men for a while. Jeez. Um, he creates Jimmy Howlett, who's a character who's had some staying power. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, the final uh-huh. twist, uh, with uh, Quicksilver being the mastermind behind Victor Van Damme, who was the mastermind behind Magneto, bores me, and doesn't make a lot of sense. The final words in this comic say, dedicated to Brian, Mark, Bill J and Joe Q, who started it all, and I wrote, "Wow, I bet they appreciated that." Yeah, just so appreciative. 
um, then I maybe your trade doesn't have this in the Marvel uh, Unlimited. It, 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 then you turn the page, and in a really dire font that looks like a real 9-11 memorial thing, white letters on black background, it says, In Memoriam, Honoring Those Who Died in Ultimatum. And then a no, list, it doesn't have this. With a list of the 34 <gasps> uh, char- named characters who died. Um, no. And I'm going to just lightning round go through them and a couple of observations about this. Hold on, I want to see if it's somewhere. At the I back will of text the it to you right now, so you can look at it and read on. Ready? No, it's not in here. Oh my god. Um. Well, we've got Angel's Dead, Beast, Blob, Cannonball. Then it says Captain Britain and the European Initiative. I don't know how many what? characters that's supposed to be. Um, Cipher, spelled with an I, not a Y. Cyclops, Sweet. Daredevil, who I don't think appeared once in this. Oh, yeah, one time he was blind and bumped into the X-Men at the beginning and then never appeared again. Uh, Dazzler. Oh, that was supposed to be Daredevil? Oh, yeah, that was Matt Murdock. Oh, my God. He's dead now. It doesn't matter. Um, Dazzler, somebody named Detonator. I don't remember Detonator. Um, Forge. Then we have Dr. Emma Frost. Um, mm-hmm. Just showing respect to Emma Frost. That's a nice touch. Hard Drive, don't remember who Hard Drive is, Juggernaut, Longshot, Lorelei, Madrix, Magneto, Nightcrawler, Polaris, Psylocke, Hank Jim, Hank Pym, uh, Hank Jim, Hank Jim, Hank Pym, parentheses, Yellow Jacket, Janet Pym, parentheses, Wasp, don't know why they're the only two who get their code names listed there, or both names rather, Uh, Dr. Franklin Storm, Dr. Stephen Strange, Sunspot, Syndicate, Thor, Toad, Victor Van Dam. Where was Toad in this? Uh, it beats me. Uh, Victor Van Dam. In parentheses, it just says Doom, Wolverine, Professor Charles Xavier, and that's the end of the list. Jeez. Um, and I gasped. And then it says missing in action, and it lists Firestar, Havoc, and Spider Man. Okay. I don't know where Firestar was anywhere in this. Havoc, they mentioned. They I mentioned, guess it was on that weird splash page. I guess. But um, that was like the cool continuity for you to wonder about your favorite heroes and where they were um, at this point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, that's Ultimatum. Did we figure out how this came to pass? I don't think we did. Um, no. I think no, we it was, really didn't. I think it was like a combination of like cynical pursuit of capital meets like an out of touch and dim view of your consumer base led to something being over the top noxious because the people making it thought that was the quickest way to get rich erroneously and incorrectly. Yeah. And that's ultimatum. uh, We made it. I lost a bet. So... Well, I hope you feel like I lived up my end of this bargain. I did a ton of research. I read this panel by panel. I gave it a lot of, like, really intense thought, and I guess I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. I don't know if I said I I, I have enjoyed it. I have enjoyed our conversation, certainly. I did not expect us this episode to last two hours. I thought we'd be in and out 45 minutes because of how terrible it is. But maybe because of how terrible it is, we needed all of that time. Because... You know, sometimes with these books, nothing happens. Like, you get to the end, and you're like, this was just terribly paced. Nothing happened. A surprisingly large amount of stuff happens in this. How much of it is good? Not a lot. Yeah, we said like three or four things that were good. Yeah. 
Um, and even that with like, like seven asterisks next to it. Yeah. Well, I can't say I enjoyed reading this comic, but I enjoyed revisiting it with you. That was fun. It was. I appreciated that. Uh, next year, we won't have to deal with some a terrible comic. We'll have to deal with a terrible movie, but often those are a lot more fun. Yeah, maybe it takes less time. Um, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, just in case you're following along with our book club, our next book club book is going to be from Steve Gerber's Howard the Duck, the very first volume. Um, we are going to be reading issues number one to eight and then issues 30 and 31. So if you want to follow yep. along, unlike Ultimatum, we encourage you to read this one. It ought to be really interesting and yes, fun. Yes, please. We're, we are excited to do that. It's going to be, um, instead of in two episodes, it'll be in three episodes. Don't worry about it. Uh, we've got fun stuff planned in between. Uh, certainly a lot more fun than this comic. Ah, but... no, we make our own fun and make my multiversity. Um, and if people want to find you making fun, Elias, where would people find that? They can find me uh, on Twitter at Quetzalish. That's Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. Uh, over there you can see me uh, you know, retweeting my stuff putting more 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 items up there uh and you know hopefully not writing terrible lines like and then god is dead god is dead um and where can they find you on the larger interwebs jana I can be found uh, contributing to MultiversityComics.com, a website I have a great deal of affection for. You can find my random thoughts. Recently, they've been about Critical Role, and they have not been positive. Uh, on on uh, Twitter, at Rambling underscore Moose. And uh, recently, I've been published on um, Comic Book Herald, which is another pretty great website. And you can see me writing about Wolverine and Batman and stuff over there. Yeah, go read her stuff. It's very good. Thank you, Elias. We will see you next time, and hopefully it'll be less dire, my friends. Excelsior.